Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Bottom Line. Today, we have a very special guest, an innovator, creator, originator of hip-hop music, uh, Daryl Mack from Run DMC is our guest today. I got to tell you, we're very blessed to have him. Um, he's not only a celebrity, a superstar, or whatever you want to call him, but he's also a humanitarian, a person that cares, and a person that has a very real and human story. So ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Daryl Mack. <laughs> Daryl, I want to thank you for taking the time to come and sit with us. And uh, how are you doing, man? Here. Happy New Year. I'm good. Happy New Year. Glad to be here, yeah, man. man. It's all good. Yeah, thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. And, and, you know, we were talking before we got started shooting about I reached out to you. We're friends. So I reach out to you and yeah. I ask you, hey, will you do this? And you say, yeah, you're my friend. That's easy. Whatever, right? And so yep. I thought based just on that, and just on who you are, right, as a, a famous person, a, a celebrity, that and sort of our interactions, and because mm -hmm. we come together by way of charity work. That's how we exactly. came together. And uh, yep. so I thought there was plenty to talk about, right? <laughs> and then I reached out to our friend Sheila Jaffe, who's the co-founder of the Felix organization with you. And I said, Sheila, I'm going to interview Daryl Mack. And I want you to give me some information about the Felix organization, stuff that I can use to fill in and have this conversation with him. And she said, oh, if you're going to interview Daryl, you really need to read his book. And I said, what? He wrote a book? What are you talking about? I had no idea. So I went, I found the book, and I actually got the audio version of the book because uh, I had listened to other people's books before, and there's something about hearing people tell their story in their own voice. And so um, I got the book, and Daryl, I mean, my God, amazing. The story, the, the difficulties, the pain, the loss, the suffering, the things that you have overcome, just absolutely <laughs> incredible. Forget about the fame. Forget about right. the celebrity. The journey that exactly. you've been on in your personal life and the very human story that it is, right? The very, yep. you know, like I, I, I did a, my very first podcast, I did an interview with a guy who was in a 90s pop band, huge pop band. And what I said to him was recovery levels the playing field. When somebody presents themselves to me as a person in recovery, um, it no, longer, it no longer matters where they come from, what they do for a living, how successful they've been, or you know, how much trouble they've been in, or whatever it is, right? We are now on the same playing field. We are level, we are eye to eye, and we share this commonality, this bond of suffering and then coming out of that suffering, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing sort of, um, Right. What is the word? It just connects us on a different level, on a right. higher level. Um, it, it sort of exactly away all of the extra stuff, right? It yep. just puts us right there with each other. Exactly. 
And uh, yep. man, I, I listened to your book and I made notes, right? Which <laughs> I don't do. And right. I ended up filling a notebook of there was just so many profound things that you talked about and so many things that I identified with and so many things that as a person in recovery um, that mm-hmm. I connected with on so many levels. So what I like to do, because I get accused of talking too much during my own interviews, right? Because that's what happens to me sometimes when I get excited, right? <laughs> of course, everybody does. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. what I'd like to do is, if it's okay with you, is, is just take us on this journey. Take us through your life. Weave us through sort of what it was like for you. Um, and I'm not talking about run DMC. I'm not talking about the fame. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, being at Dexter's house that first time, you know, oh. take us through, take us sort of on a step-by-step tour of what Daryl Mack's life was like as it relates to this brokenness, this, this thing that connects us. And the journey that I'm talking about is the right. journey of really trying to get acceptance, trying to fit in, Trying to fit in and and be part of the game. And also trying to feel different about who we were, right? Exactly, right. Yeah, so take me through that, man. Well, um, it was, I think I was 10 or 11, maybe 12 years old. And um, went down. Dexter was older than us. Dexter was 15. Yeah, Mm. I might have been 12 years old. Dexter was 15. He was the cool kid on the block that had everything. You know what I'm saying? He had the basketball rim. He always had the new sneakers, always had the fly clothes. In his basement, he had the uh, AFX race cars and the, the, the Tyco train set. Like he had the whole layout with the trees, the houses. So Dexter was the man. Yeah. He had waves. You know what I'm saying? Wait a he had waves? He, Huh? He had waves Ooh, in his hair. Oh, I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm saying? He was the fly kid with the part. He always had the newest clothes. You know, he he always had, remember, before Adidas and Pumas and stuff like that, it was Converse oh, yeah. and Pro Keds. Yep. Remember the Pro Keds yep. back in the day? So he was that kid. He was the fly kid in the neighborhood. And he was older than me and Nathan. So me and Nathan, we looked up to him. So make a long story short, he he invites us in his house one day. And he shows us all the wonderful stuff that he had, and he takes us up in his room, and he pulls out a joint. Not a blunt. Yeah. A joint rolled with uh, bamboo, you know, bamboo rolling yeah, paper. Yeah, yeah. And he pulls the joint out, and we're like, yo, what's that? And he was like, yo, we're going to smoke this. And, you know, you take your first pull of it, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it just changed your whole existence. And... That was the first time that I ever got high. Yeah. So you kind of turned into what you, you, did you instantly feel like I arrived? No, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. It was a gradual thing because then it wore off and then I was back in my world. Yeah. So the next day was the next day that we went over his house and I said, um, I said, um, cause I didn't even know how to speak, you know, yeah, sure. the lingo yeah, and yeah. that stuff. I was like, yo, Yo, Dexter, can we smoke some more marijuana? <laughs> can we smoke? Can we smoke some more marijuana? Yeah, yeah, you know, because yeah. I'm a I'm a school kid, so I'm gonna use the proper term sure. for it. And I remember Dexter looking at me, say, "Yo, man, don't say it like that." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then um, we smoked some more, and 
every day we started smoking this this reefer. Mm. It was reefer back yeah, then. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And then after that, now see, for me it was a little weird because now I realized that I was doing it to be cool. Yeah. And I didn't already know that I didn't know that I I was already all right. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So then it just became it 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 wasn't it wasn't more it was more of me wanting to be accepted and to be down and to be part of to be accepted. Sure. As opposed to me loving to be high. Absolutely. So we started smoking weed every day. If we couldn't get a nickel bag, which was five dollars, we get a tray bag. Right. If you couldn't get the, which was three dollars. If you couldn't get the tray bag, you get the loose joint. Like you know, me and Nathan, we started putting fifty cent together, you know, to get the loose joint and stuff like that. But then, that was it for probably that first whole summer. Or the first two years. But then it was more like that third year of, of, you know, experimenting with with getting high. When I discovered alcohol, it was over. My first love. (laughs) What? My first love, alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Because the weed, the weed was very relaxing. But it it was it made me feel uncomfortable because it made you paranoid, and then I noticed because um I'm OCD yep. I'm very OCD, I noticed that it 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 made all my friends lose and forget stuff, and I didn't like that feeling. Yeah, yeah. The weed made me feel vulnerable, but I kept doing it because I thought I had to. But man, when I took my first sip of some old English. <laughs> And I took my first sip of some Bacardi. Yo, it was over. It made me feel indestructible. Yeah, that's so. And how old were you? You said it was two years later, so about fourteen. Yeah, you your first drink? I was about fifteen. Yeah, fifteen, like fifteen years old when I had my first drink. Now, when I actually had my first sip of something, I was little. Me and my cousin Heath. I think I around. I was around eight or nine, and my cousin Heath was probably seven or eight. This is earlier though, when 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 our parents would have the Christmas and New Year's sure, party, yeah. and then you know you wake you you wasn't allowed to boy get your ass back <laughs> in that room, but then me and Heath we woke up the next morning we ran out to the basement and um we started sipping the um the leftover liquor that our aunts and uncles had, and I remember when I first took my first sip I hated it yeah. I was like what the hell you know I, th- I was expecting it to taste like Kool Aid or sure. something. So I didn't get the effect of it. I just, uh, I put it, I took a sip of it around seven or eight and said, that's the worst shit ever. I'm never doing it. But then fast forward to when I was 15 years old and I got the result of it. It just made me feel indestructible. It made me not care what people thought about me. It made me, it made me just feel totally different person. You arrived. That, you arrived. I arrived. Right. Yeah, now that, that arrived. was my arrive, That was my arrival moment, and I did not know that that feeling wasn't the true feeling of who I really was. Right. So for me, my first drink was older kids in the neighborhood thought it'd be funny for to watch a little kid drink. I drank. I stole fifty dollars from the from the local Y, and for that fifty dollars, I got a quarter Budweiser. 
and I drank that quart of Budweiser, and something happened to me. Uh, I remember I went home, and I was down in my basement, and I was watching Creature Double Feature, and the room started to spin, and I knew that I was starting to feel sick, so I knew I had to get out of the house. So I go up the stairs, I'm going out through the kitchen, I trip, I fall, and throw up all over the kitchen floor. Yeah, all over the kitchen floor. And so my mom, no, she can smell it. She can smell the alcohol. And she's like, what is this? Where did you get this? What's going on? And instantly I point right up the street and I tell her that the hippies up the street gave it to me. She goes up the street. She beats a head hippie up over the head with her shoe. And I get locked in my room for a couple of days. And I remember it was the middle of the summer. And I remember I got let out of my room. And I remember my dad basically saying something along the lines of, you're not old enough to drink. Don't do it again. I think he kind of thought that me getting sick like I got was enough for me to learn my lesson. And uh, I was out of the house, and I literally was out of the house maybe five minutes, and I was right back at that hippie's house, ready to pay the price for snitching on him as long as I could have some more. Of course. Yeah, my, my thing was this. When I, just, when, I, when I arrived... I knew I don't care about this weed stuff no more. So it was funny. I would still throw in for the tray bag or the nickel bag, but then I would go get my own. 40s wasn't even out then. It was quarts of old English back then. So my my, um, alcoholism (laughs) started when I would throw in for the tray and, you know, take a few puffs of the joints when it was going around. But I would get my own quarter old English to go with it. Mm. And then eventually, um, eventually, even when we threw in, see, this was bad. Even when we threw in, like every now and then we didn't have enough. I didn't have enough to get my own quarter. But so we would throw in 35 cents, you you got quarter, this (laughs) and that. And five of us would sit there and drink some old English. I would just get a buzz. That wasn't enough for me. Yeah. So what I would do was I would go home. My mother and father had this can of pennies in the basement. And I would go get the rolls and the rolls to fill sure up the dollars would. worth of pennies. And I would fill that up and I would take it to Dolly. She's still there today. Dolly's on the corner of Hollis and 198th Street. And I would give Dolly's um a dollar thirty-five for my own quarter old English because it made me feel comfortable in an uncomfortable world now i might have been comfortable in my system in myself but something there was something contrary to the way i felt it it just made me feel safe it made me not care about the thugs and the hard rocks it made me not it it made me not be afraid to walk up the avenue you know what i'm saying Liquid courage. Yeah, you get, yeah it was courage. liquid courage. And people, That's the word I was people, looking for. It. I think, sometimes misconstrue what that means, right? So it's not about right. I'll go have a fight with somebody. or I'll, Right, no, it's, not at all. I will function in the world. It's just about being able to get through a day. It's about being comfortable in our own skin. It's about being able to ask a right, right. to dance. It's exactly. about just feeling okay, you know? And that it's, it's almost like medicating ourselves, right? It just gives us that sort of comfortable goal. yes i'll talk to people right exactly a lot of what you talk about in the book like learning to draw and having outlets that really must have saved your life 
that that's funny. Um, what as a little kid, my perfect world was my comic books. Yeah. My perfect world was me sitting there drawing. My perfect world was sitting there learning in school. I did I, until I got sober. I realized that power felt better than the power that the old English was giving me. But I was, I don't know, I was too blind to see or I didn't pay attention or maybe I thought the way the old English, the the way the old, I thought that the way the old English made me feel, made me better. Right. You know what I'm saying? In in all ways. I think it's it's a fitting in thing too, right? It's like you're in the world. Right. The other kids are doing this already. Right. Yeah. And you're like, hey, I got to get I don't do my, this. This is my crew. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I, did, I did not know that um, being a good student, loving comic books and drawing was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I did not know that because other kids didn't do that. They smoke, they drink, they party. So somewhere you become hypnotized. Yeah. Or you become, um, you be, yeah, you become hypnotized thinking, oh, I need to, you start saying to yourself, in order for me to be perfect, I need to do that too. See, D, I think, I think we're, we were alcoholics just waiting to happen. You know, that uncomfortable feeling, that energy, that anxiety, that only alcohol seemed to be able to soothe for us. Right. See, right out of the gate, as far back as I can remember, I was always in trouble. I was always anxious. I was always full of energy. And then I discovered alcohol, and it kind of slowed everything down, almost like a professional athlete talks about, right? They talk about being in their zone. In the and zone. Just, and everything oh, slows in down. The, zone. the pitch yeah. slows down. The pass slows down. The tempo of everything slows down. For me, only alcohol did that for me until it turned on me. Yeah, right? yeah. When it turned on it, me, then it became just an absolute nightmare. It's like, you know, one year uh, on Christmas of all times, right? I'm out. I'm with a friend. It's early in the evening. Everything is beautiful. The snow's falling. It's, the temperature is perfect. We're standing on the corner. He's got a drink. I got a drink. I got one glove on. He's got the other glove on, and everything is perfect. Yep. And then yep. I slip over that line, and then everything just gets crazy, right? It's like, you know, by the time my night ended, I went home on Christmas Eve, and the police were in front of my house. Wow. You know, reporting to my parents what I had just right. done down the street. Um, and I had no recollection of any of it. I didn't remember one bit of it. Right. The thing about blackouts for me is, you know, everything would be perfect. Everything would be great. I'd be having a fantastic time. And then I take one more drink or even one more sip and slip into that darkness, right? Where for me, a blackout would be like, you know, I'd get this thought in my mind. Usually the worst possible thought, or showing up in the, the place that I'm least wanted in the entire world, that thought would arrive in my head, my head would lean forward, and I would just follow my head and show up to the, to the people that didn't want to see me or the place where I wasn't welcome. That's crazy. See, I didn't have my blackouts until way, way later. Yeah. I think with me, um, I had a high tolerance for the alcohol. Uh-huh. So I needed to drink a lot. Like when when most people would just drink, um, I guess, you know, a couple of my boys, Smith, Garfield, when most of the people, okay, they could probably drink, you know, 540s in a day. Yeah. I had to drink a case. Oof. 
to get to that level. Yeah, yeah. And now, and that was just during the day. See, after I discovered old English, that liquid courage. So now it would make me go to the park. Now it would make me go to the places that I normally wouldn't go. Right. So now I'm discovering. Um, now I'm discovering, you know, what's out there. You know, whether it was the guys in the park playing ball, whether it was the people out there DJing and stuff like that. But I still, it still didn't give me enough courage to get on the microphone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't doing that, but I, I would go to the park and I would be in the midst, you know what I'm saying? I wasn't, it just made me not afraid to, to, to be alive. Awesome. The alcohol, without the alcohol, I'm alive. Yeah. Okay. The alcohol made me realize there's more to life than just being alive. Right. You know what I'm saying? And but it wasn't, I didn't start getting my um my blackouts until probably a year before it was time for me to get sober. Because I started with old English. And then, remember back in the early 80s, it was um Bacardi and Coke, oh, yeah. screwdrivers, fuzzy navels, this and that. Now, if you didn't have enough money to get that, no, hold up. This is bad. <laughs> Wild Irish Rose. Always did this. Yeah, night. right. Yo, <laughs> Night Train. You oh, know yeah. it. Wild Irish Rose, Night Train, 99 cents. If you couldn't afford a quarter on English, you would stoop down to get the night. And that's a whole nother level. If, if I was feeling like um, the Hulk off the old English, that, that, that Night Train yeah. and that Wild Irish Rose made me feel like Thanos. Yeah. Now I'm about to snap my finger and the whole world's going to end. I felt that powerful. But um, when I first started drinking in the earlier, it was all English all during the day. Then it was alcohol. Right. You know what I'm saying? The, the Bacardi and Coke and the rum and Coke at nighttime. And it just became a 24-7 thing where I felt that I needed to be in that state continuously to operate uh, you know that's when it got crazy for me and 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 the thing is is for me when you say that it makes perfect sense right and right i understand that completely that i was always constantly in a state of inebriation right i was right. always either i was always either hung over trying to get something to feel better or on my yep. way to being in a blackout, get, passed out, and I would never know when that might happen, right? When you get to the place where your body is just anesthetized, you're always yeah. consuming alcohol, yep. you kind yep. of are just, you're just under the influence all the time, whether you got all a drink in hand or not. Yeah, no, for real. And 100%. I would go out, right. and I might have one drink and slip into a blackout. Right. Literally, one drink, or I might drink all night and, and never go into a blackout. It was such an unpredictable yep. thing for me. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And, it's, if, yeah, it was a point where you was never not high. Right. And the thing is, is that it gives you these sort of, these false messages, right? So in your book, you talk about your first show with Run, right? And how yeah. overwhelmed and anxious and afraid you were. Scared to death. And then you had a couple of drinks and you were able to get up on that stage. Still afraid, but able to do it, right? And that sort of hit you with that message, right? That I need my friend alcohol in order to be able to do this. And it, from the sounds of it, from reading your book, that was a theme that would continue with you for many, many years. Okay, so folks, we've been talking about this book throughout this whole interview. The book is called 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide. 
The book is amazing. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's available at Barnes & Noble. It's available at Amazon. It's available anywhere books are sold. It's also available on iTunes. And I highly recommend the audio version of this book. To hear you tell these stories, to hear you yeah. share these intimate details, and you weren't shy about anything. I wasn't, right? I, I was, I was open about anything because you know I realized something, Jim. I realized that my whole career on records, if I can be honest and tell you about, I didn't notice though. I, if I could be honest and tell you about the good things in my life that could inspire you, yeah. I realize I even have more power talking about the bad things I've been through is even more powerful. Like, you know, my whole career was always, uh, I'm DMC in a place to be. I go to St. John's University. Oh, shoot, man, DMC goes to school and he's rapping and he's from the hood. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I could. It was always, you know, family, Christmas time in Hollis. I always rapped about good, happy things. And people really felt inspired by that. But I remember the first time... <clears throat> When I started talking about what I've been through, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I found out that I, I found out I was adopted at um, age 35, which started me drinking again because prior yeah. to that, I had acute pancreatitis. Um, um, I was in rehab. I was in therapy and stuff like that. When I say those things, those things are more powerful than any of the lyrics I ever spit on the record. 